You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. Uh, well, good evening again, and um, you can tell from uh, the reading that we're in First Peter, and um, this is the last sermon in the series on First Peter, so if you missed all of it, uh, this is a great summary. This passage actually is a great way to summarize the whole book, and um, it actually loops around back to the beginning. Uh, he began the letter by saying that, uh, that we are elect exiles. And I keep saying throughout the sermon series that we're both elect, chosen by God, and also exiles and strangers in this world. And now he ends by saying, in verse 13, uh, she who is at Babylon is likewise chosen. And so she is the church, uh, and the church is in Rome. Babylon is a code name for Rome. And uh, so she was in Babylon as the church in exile, but she's chosen. So we're both of these things as a church. We are a people who are in exile, wherever we are in the world, whatever country we are in the world, whatever society, and we're also at the same time chosen. Um, so I want to look at those two things, being exiles in Babylon and yet being chosen. Because this is the nature of the church. And if you are not familiar with Christianity, uh, if you're here for the first time, uh, or maybe you don't like the church very much, you had a bad experience in church, uh, Peter's telling us a lot here about what the church is really meant to be, what's supposed to be. So um, not that our church is perfect by any means, but Peter's telling us what a church ought to be. So listen now for uh, what he says a church should be like. And the first thing he says is that the church must always realize that the church is in exile. We are never to have hegemony or power in a culture. We are not meant to be the, the masters of a culture. When the church becomes part of the establishment, the church goes wrong. It always has. Uh, the church must be in exile. And he uses the word Babylon, uh, not because Babylon actually existed. It was actually destroyed many, many years ago. Uh, he uses Babylon as a code word for the Roman Empire. But, the, but he, what he's saying is that, uh, without saying Rome, because he might get in trouble if he said Rome, uh, but what he's saying is that Babylon... Uh, Assyria, Persia, uh, Greece, Rome, America, whatever the empire is, they're really all the same. And if you don't know what the empire is, I talk about the empire a lot. Think about the matrix, just this world of illusion that's been created, uh, that we live in that's not the real world. Uh, it's kind of a, a fake. Uh, it's a mirage. Or think about the galactic empire from Star Wars, the way it's been taken over uh, by the emperor, by Darth Vader, uh, by the stormtroopers, an illegitimate rule, or think about Mordor, you know, the power, the darkness of Mordor and the Lord of the Rings. 
Uh, there's three movies right there, Donnie. So, <laughs> um, Peter is saying that all that stuff, whether you're back in Babylon, Rome, or today in America, it's, it's persisting throughout time. And so the book of Daniel sees uh, this statue. The prophet Daniel sees this statue. And the head is, of, um, the head is gold. Uh, the torso is silver. Uh, the legs uh, are bronze and the feet are clay. But what Daniel realizes, that's all one empire. It's all one great monster uh, of Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece. And we are in the monster's lair as Christians. And one thing that happens when you become a Christian, you realize, oh my gosh, there's an empire and I'm, and I'm in it. And that's not who I really am. That's not really what I am. I'm this part of this kingdom. And this kingdom is coming to resist the empire. Christ brought the kingdom to resist the empire, to live in an alternative culture where people are baptized, where they take the Lord's Supper. That's what the church is. It's a kingdom of God. It's an instance of the kingdom of God. And so Peter says that we must resist him. Verse 9, resist him firm in your faith. So part of what faith means is you're resisting. The kingdom is always like the French resistance against the Nazi occupation. We're resisting evil. What Margie said about the Bible study, it's part of resisting and pushing back lies. We push back lies with truth. In um, Revelation 12, uh, John sees this great dragon. He calls it the ancient serpent, the devil, the deceiver of the whole world, the accuser of the brothers and sisters, the liar. And so when Peter says resist him, he's talking about that, that fellow, the devil, Satan, the dragon, the serpent, the one in the garden, the one who killed Jesus, the one who tempts you every day, the one who lies to you, he pushes you around, he bullies you. He's always trying to make us despair. I love in the movie um, The Lion King when Simba and Scar face off towards the end. And you know, Simba could easily destroy his uncle Scar, the evil uncle Scar who's taken over the, the realm. A great example, uh, by the way, of, 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 of Satan or the emperor is this guy Scar you know, the evil uncle of Simba. And Simba could easily kill Scar. And I keep wanting to just like one paw to the head and Scar's gone. But what does Scar do to debilitate and to weaken and paralyze and cripple Simba? He starts to accuse him. He's like, you killed your father. You're a nothing. You're a nobody. You have no legitimacy. You have no authority. And Simba's so powerful and he is so weakened by the lies of his uncle. And that's what Satan tries to do. He tries to intimidate you and push you around. In 1 Peter 3.14, Peter says that uh, the world will speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ. So when you try to actually follow Christ and do what's right, the world, whether it's your company, your boss, uh, your fraternity or sorority brothers or sisters, your roommate, uh, your teacher maybe even, will try to push you around and, and maybe even speak maliciously against you. If somebody is speaking maliciously against you because you've made certain choices that are good, praise God. That's what Peter's talking about. Praise God, you're resisting the empire. Uh, the enemy will try to frighten you into disobedience and fill your mind with the voice of disapproval, like how dare you not uh, approve of what we do or what a fool you are to stay chaste or not to get drunk or pretend to be innocent. And the, and the empire will tell you these things and, and Peter says, resist, resist and stand firm. Uh, Austin uh, 
some of you don't know Austin. Uh, he's uh, the associate pastor here. You might have seen him. He's always he was serving everybody. He's like he was the host, greeting everybody. But if you don't know Austin, um, he sent me this um, this text this week, and uh, the, the text said, uh, "Do right and fear no man." Do right and fear no man. We just had a conversation about sometimes it's so hard uh, to want to please people and not do what is right. And so he sent me a text, uh, do what is right and fear no man. And uh, I don't know where he got that. I have no idea where that comes from. But that is exactly what Peter's talking about. Uh, that we should obey God as, as much as we can, as, and as far as we possibly can. We should obey him and forget about the cost. Forget about what anybody says about you. Just edit out all those voices and just do what you think is right. Follow his word. Another great movie is uh, Just Mercy. It's actually a better book than a movie. It's about a guy named Brian Stevenson. He's still alive. Fantastic lawyer. Uh, African-American guy. Went to Harvard Law. Could have made tons of money in a private practice. Instead, he went down to Alabama. Went down to Alabama. And uh, he went there to get these, these guys off of death row. Who were, who were, um, they were on death row. And he went down there, and, and he knew that he would be going in there and meddling with people's lives. And uh, he knew they would hate him. He knew that it would bring up a lot of pain to reopen these cases about these guys on death row. But he knew that he had to fight for justice. And so he knew that he had to do what is right and fear no man. And they tried to intimidate him to stop doing that. At the end of that movie, you see Brian Stevenson and all these people that he's gotten off death row. And I started crying when I saw that. It's just... The fact that he resisted the empire and did what is right bore that much fruit. So where is God calling you to resist and stand firm? Verse 12, this is the true grace of God. Now stand firm in it. Stand firm. Don't give up hope. Peter is in the belly of the beast. Peter is writing this from Rome, maybe even from a jail cell in Rome. He's in the belly of the beast where he's going to be crucified upside down. We know that from Eusebius, a historian. Peter ends up being crucified upside down. And yet, he proclaims in verse 11, to Christ be dominion forever and ever. Not Nero, not Domitian, not Augustus, but to Christ, the crucified carpenter. You know, Peter's writing this at a time when there's no way that this crucified man is going to have dominion. And yet Peter is proclaiming to Christ be the dominion. And to this day, he rules the world. This crucified carpenter has more adherence, more loyal adherence to him than any, any leader has ever had in the history of the world. And we follow him to the death. And so Peter says, way back there in 60 AD, to Christ be the dominion forever and ever. So that's, first point that we are in Babylon, but the second point is that because Christ has dominion and because we're chosen, the empire is going down. The empire is predestined to fall. It's already falling. It will completely fall because it's a matter of God's choice. It's a matter of God's decree. The word is sovereignty. It's a big word. It means God is completely in control, that God rules everything from the, the number of hairs on your head, the fall of the sparrow in the sky, the roll of the dice, God is sovereign over everything. 
including anyone that comes into his church. And we call this election or being chosen. And you know, when I say election, I mean, I've had a lot of conversations with people who don't believe in election. They don't believe God chooses people. And I admit it's very hard. When I first came to believe it, I, I cried uh, many, many times because I didn't think that was what was true about God. I didn't think God could be that kind of God. And a lot of times when Christians talk about election, we talk about it in a way that's like getting a bid to a sorority or fraternity. Like, you know, I'm just that kind of guy. I got chosen because I'm just like that. You know, I'm the type of guy that God would choose. Like I've got chutzpah or something like that. Um, you know, I'm the kind of guy God can work with. That's not, what, that's not what election means at all. It's the opposite of that. It's exactly the opposite. It's that God's choice of me has nothing to do with my virtue. My brother, who was an atheist, I was an atheist. I would be exactly like him. He is a more virtuous man than I am. But God chose me and he has changed me. He chose me because I was weak. Because I was a fearful, uh, cowardly person. He chose me because of that. It's not based on your virtue. It's, it's the opposite. It undercuts all of your supposed virtue. All self-righteousness is destroyed by the doctrine of election. In verse 10, it says, the God of all grace, the God of all grace calls you. He's the one that calls. And so election has nothing to do with our goodness except to say that your goodness is not a part of the equation. The only thing you bring to your salvation is your sin. That's the only thing we bring, and the rest is done by God. So election is not about our goodness. A, thank the Lord. Praise God that it's got nothing to do with me or you. That's number one. Number two is that election is never individualistic. Uh, that's another problem that we have with the idea of election. We think about God like choosing these individual people and not these other these people. Like I can choose you and you and you and not you and you and you. And I don't know how it works, but I do know that God chooses community. It's, it's communal. He, he brings a family together. So it's not just me, Ben Milner. He says uh, in, in verse 12, he, it's Sylvanus is part of the community. Peter's part of the community. Mark is part of the community, verse 13. The whole church in Rome in verse 13 is part of the community. The whole church, all the churches Peter is writing to, it's, it's a communal reality. God chooses a family. Look at verse 9. The same kind of suffering are being experienced by your sisters and brothers throughout the world. So we are a, uh, we are a family of solidarity in our suffering as we fight against the empire. That's what the church is. It's a chosen people of God to be in solidarity in our suffering as we resist the empire. And we don't, re we don't revel in our chosenness like, oh, I'm chosen, you know, look at me. I'm chosen. Uh, we don't revel in our, we, we, we resist. We, we don't really even think about that. We just, we just know that we resist. We suffer. We, we work together to take down the empire. And so the church is an army of broken, suffering people, and we're learning how to love. We're learning how to lay down our lives. We're learning how to say beautiful things to one another. I love that I love that Peter says that uh, Sylvanus is a faithful brother in verse 12. He's not his, he's not his brother. He's, he's actually not related to Sylvanus at all. But he calls him a brother. Because in Christ, the bond between two people is stronger than that of blood. Um, I am actually closer in Christ 
to any of you who call yourselves a Christian than I am to my brother who's not a believer. Because brotherhood is spiritual. Sisterhood is spiritual. And so Peter calls Sylvanus his brother. And then Mark, he calls his son. Peter doesn't even have a son. He's not old enough to have a son. And yet he calls Mark his son, his son in the faith. And so part of what we're supposed to do as a church is learn to use language well and to speak to one another with words like brother or sister or son or daughter, to say things to one another. And I'm not very comfortable with that, um, partly because I went to a church when I first became a pastor where they always called each other brother and sister, and it was kind of, I didn't really like it. Um, so I've, I, don't, I don't do that a whole lot, but I, I should do that more. Um, so uh, it's a good thing to call someone a brother or a sister. Um, that's what Peter does. That's part of what it means to become a community, a family of love, is we, we learn how to talk to each other in new ways. And not only that, and this is even more uncomfortable for me, but we learn how to show physical affection. That's really hard. Um, he says in verse 14, greet, another, greet one another with a kiss of love. And that's why the French do that thing where they put their cheeks next to each other. You know, that, that would have been the kiss of love. I think, I think Russians do that. I think Italians actually kiss each other on the che- both cheeks. Uh, usually Anglos don't do any of that stuff. Um, people from uh, the tradition of anyone from Northern Europe uh, tends to be a, about a fist bump is about as far, maybe a handshake. Um, but one translator, this is a British guy, he translates that, give each other a handshake all around as a sign of love. Uh, that is so far below the kiss of love. So I'm not going to go as far as kissing any of y'all. But I'm going to try to hug more of you. Okay, that's what I'll try to do. And I would encourage you to try to hug each other more often. Um, one thing that was really hard in the pandemic if you were single is that nobody actually got to, you never got touched by anybody. Uh, and so as a brother or sister in Christ, let's, let's show more physical affection. Uh, it makes me nervous, but it's one of the things God calls us out of. He calls you out of your comfort zone to be a chosen family of love, of belovedness. Again, verse 10, the God of all grace calls you to his eternal glory in Christ. So he calls us by name and we come to him. He says, Matthew, and Matthew came. He says, uh, Samuel, Samuel, and Samuel came. He says, Paul, Paul, and Paul comes. He said, Ben, Ben Milner, come, and, and I came. He calls and we come because his call is so intimate and personal. And if you are a believer, it's because God called your name. At some point, you heard him say your name. And if you don't believe, um, ask him, say, speak my name, call me, and he will call you and you will come because his call is all powerful and almighty. And the call is to glory. Uh, The God of all grace calls you to eternal glory in Christ. So the call is to glory And it's a glory that goes beyond suffering. It's a glory that conquers suffering. Notice in verse 10, and I love this verse, after you suffer, the God of grace will himself restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. I would encourage you to memorize those four words. Uh, They're beautiful words. After you have suffered a little while, I mean, who's suffering in here? I mean, we're suffering. I'm sure you're all suffering in different ways. And he says, after you suffered a little while, and been broken apart, uh, the God of all grace will restore you and he will confirm you and he will strengthen you and he will establish you. And the metaphor Peter is using of a boat, it's a boat metaphor. And Peter was a fisherman, so he knew about boats. 
And what he's saying is that restoring a boat is taking this, uh, this tattered, beaten up boat, ready to fall apart, full of gashes, uh, tattered sails, and restoring is, is making it seaworthy again. And we're going to make it firm. We're gonna confirm it with the tar and the pitch. And the word strengthen means literally the power not to fall apart. So it's keeping the boat together. And establishing means having a strong foundation. So God is always sending you into storms. He's always sending you into suffering. And then after that, he builds you back together. He restores you. He strengthens you. He confirms you. He establishes you. The God of all grace will do this. Of all grace. Every loss, every single loss that you suffer because of your faith, he will make that right. And every tear you cry, he will wipe that away. And every ounce of fatigue that is expended in following him, he will take that fatigue away. And every battered piece of you, he will restore that. And everything you've ever lost for following him, he will return to you. Because the God of all grace, it says himself will do these things. Because he himself becomes the nail and the wood and the pitch and the tar. That he himself is the one that brings you back together by being broken himself. And that's what we celebrate at this table.